0: Good morning, my name's Dave, one of the pastors here. We are so excited to continue in our series this summer through the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, this morning we are talking about one aspect of the fruit that we can all use a little bit more of, and that is the aspect of joy. Our key verse for this series is from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I hope that you'll memorize this this summer. And so let's say it together to help ourselves to that end. Ready, here we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love great job. And so what we're doing each week in this series is going through one aspect of the fruit of the spirit. And last week we kicked it off with the aspect of love. Johnny Graves took us to John chapter 13 and we talked about the love of Jesus Christ, how his love never fails. He loves us to the end and he wants that love to live inside of all of us. Appropriately, that is first on the list of the fruit of the spirit because indeed it is the fountainhead of the rest of the fruit. And today we move on to talk about the fruit of the spirit which is joy. Now the opposite of joy would be a state of hopelessness and a state of despair, hopelessness And despair. And I think we see that everywhere we look around us today, don't we? Joy is hard to find. Uh, The inflation numbers are out there, not giving us a whole lot of joy. The stock market isn't producing a whole lot of joy these days. The pandemic continues, the polarization, you name it. Joy is something our world desperately needs right now. Joy is something our church needs right now. And can I be honest? Joy is something I need right now. And so this message is just as much for me as it is for the rest of us. But what often happens when we don't have joy in our lives is we settle for the counterfeit. And every single aspect of this fruit has an opposite and also a counterfeit. The counterfeit of joy, of course, you could probably guess is happiness, We settle for happiness. Recently, Psychology Today magazine featured a poll where 52,000 Americans were asked one question. What would it take to make you happy? What would it take to make you happy? How would you answer that question? For me, it would be two words, cheese enchiladas. That's what I need (laughs) uh, to make me happy. But in all seriousness, here's some of their answers. Some people said good friends or a social life, uh, being in love. Some people said recreation. Others said recognition and success. Success. Some answers were being attractive and beautiful or having a good financial situation, having the right house or having the right job. So what about you? How would you answer that question? What would it take to make you happy? The interesting thing to me as I looked at that poll was I looked at the answers and most of the strategies to to find happiness were external rather than internal. In other words, the most popular strategy to obtain happiness was to have the right circumstances around you. And actually, if you wanna know whether or not that would really create genuine, lasting happiness, you could save yourself a whole lot of time, energy, and resources, and go read a book written by a guy named Solomon called Ecclesiastes, where he addressed this question. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, this is what he wanted to do. He said, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. And in this book, Solomon actually, the wisest person to ever live, tells us what he tried. And he says that he, he tried accumulating things. He tried building stuff. He tried experiencing pleasure. He tried achieving success. He says, I had it all. I I had money. I had had power. I had servants galore. I had huge success in my career. I was the king over this mighty empire. But amazingly, none of that produced any lasting happiness for him. They were all dead ends. In fact, he tells us in chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And it's not just Solomon who's come to that conclusion, right? We've heard these kinds of words of despair on the lips of many of our cultural heroes. People that you would think are the most successful people in the world often have these kinds of sentiments when they make it to the top, whether it's Elvis Presley or Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Jay Gould was one of the richest people to ever walk the face of the earth. He had more money than he could ever spend. And at the end of his life, he made an amazing statement. He said this, quote, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Maybe we got the wrong strategy. And so the question is, if the right circumstances don't actually produce any lasting, real, fulfilling happiness in my life, what will? And the answer, of course, is knowing the difference between happiness and joy. And so that's our topic for today. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And for this, I want to primarily be drawing from the book of Philippians. It's a book written by the Apostle Paul. It is often called the Epistle of Joy. Joy is a major theme in this epistle. And we'll look at some other verses too, but that's the primary source of the message content today. And we're going to ask and answer two questions. The first question is what steals your joy? And then the second question is, how do you get your joy back? What steals your joy? How do you get your joy back? Now, for some of you, life is good right now. Life is joyful, and you're happy, and we're happy that you're happy, and we rejoice with you. Uh, For others of you, life is okay, it's manageable, and I want you to listen to this message today because tomorrow, life may become unmanageable. And then for others of you now, uh, right now, you would describe the state of your life as a place of hopelessness, as a place of real despair, and you have hit a new bottom. And for you, I really want you to listen to this message today really carefully because this is for you. And so let's pray and ask the Lord's help for our time in our uh, our message today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you uh, would do a mighty work in our hearts. I pray that the effect of the unfolding of today's word would be that dozens, many people here today would embrace the true source of joy that we find in your joy. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're present here. Would you cause us to see the great source of joy that we have? Would you cause us to embrace this source of joy with passion, the source of joy that can never be taken away? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll begin with Philippians chapter 1. Paul gives some introductory remarks beginning in verse 3 by saying this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Jesus. We'll pause right there. Notice the word joy. That is the Greek word kara. It's used a lot in the epistle of Philippians. It's used 72 times in the New Testament. The idea behind this word is, is, is a, a, a sheer delight, a sense of blessing, a, a confidence, a, a very high kind of pleasure. That's joy. Notice where Paul finds his joy. It's related in a sense to this partnership that he has with the church at Philippi. Did you notice the word partnership? That's not just a business partnership. That's a technical term in the New Testament. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's a kind of deep fellowship, a partnership that he has with this church, not a superficial social event kind of relationship. It is a connection that speaks of being one in purpose with another person. Paul has a partnership with the church at Philippi. This is giving him great joy and he's mod- for us one of the first paths toward joy that we need to remember and that is this joy comes when we are grateful for the people in our lives you and i know that if our relationships are strained our joy often quickly dissipates if you have problems with people it kills the joy in your life right away if your relationships are bad life stinks but paul takes the time to be grateful for his relationships and so who are the people around you Who are the people that God has placed around you, that you are in relationship with, where you can locate a source of great joy as a blessing from God to you? We had a lot of joy on campus this week with our summer adventure program, five straight days of just joy on this campus as the kids would go from station to station to station, learning about the good news, making crafts, playing games, having fun. There was so much joy on campus you could hardly stand it. It was an amazing week of ministry and real joy. Are you grateful for the people that God has placed in your life? Now, I know the people in our lives aren't perfect, and so did Paul. Did you notice here that he says you're all in process? Did you notice he says, I know he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion? Did you notice that? He's not saying you people are perfect. He's saying, I know I'm changing, you're changing, I'm growing, you're growing. If you want to have joy with people, then you've got to leave room for the fact that God isn't done with them yet, God isn't done with you yet. He's still working on you. If you want to have a joyful marriage, you've got to learn to enjoy your husband right now. Enjoy your wife right now, even while they are growing, even while they are maturing and developing. Are you grateful for the people in your life right now? In fact, the key verse in Philippians 4.4 says this. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Notice that word always. That's what's called a universal positive, meaning it's all-inclusive. There are no exceptions here. There isn't a time where we can't or shouldn't be doing this. It's absolute. So what that means is as Christ followers, we ought to be a joyful people always. No matter what, no matter where we are, at home, at work, at church, Our enemy, Satan, does not want this to happen. We have an enemy that wants to steal our joy. He's called a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, and he uses a lot of different techniques to choke the joy out of our lives like a weed chokes out the life of a good fruit-bearing plant. And one of the things he likes to use in my life and yours is difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances can be like a weed that sucks the joy right out of you. There are things that happen to us, even little things that sometimes just make life tough, uh, you get a flat tire. Uh, you spill your coffee on your furniture. You, 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 know, you forget to bring your bags to the grocery store. Anybody yeah. here feeling me with that? <laughs> uh, we face these minor, difficult, irritating circumstances all the time, right? But somehow we get through those. Really, it's the major difficult circumstances that make it hard for us to maintain our joy. Your teenager is arrested for drugs. You're your, your unmarried daughter informs you she's pregnant. Uh, your boss calls and tells you you don't need to come to work tomorrow. You've been let go. The doctor has a report, and it's, it's cancer. These are the kinds of difficult circumstances that truly test our joy, that truly threaten our joy to choke it out for real. But friends, here's the surprising news the letter to the church at Philippi. This particular document, it's these exact kinds of circumstances that surround the setting of Paul writing to this church. In fact, they were experiencing severe persecution for being a Christian right here. Paul himself is in prison for preaching the gospel as he picks up his pen and writes these words. And look at what he says, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Can you imagine that perspective? Here's Paul. He's in prison. This is his attitude, saying, this is actually a good thing. This has served to advance the gospel. The word advance there was actually a pioneering term used to describe when you clear out a forest in order to create a new building program. It works really well for our botanical organic metaphor. He's saying these circumstances are advancing. They're clearing out the way for much fruitfulness in the gospel ministry. Paul in prison is clearing a way for the gospel to spread even in Rome. Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. He didn't imagine going to Rome in this manner. He wanted to go to Rome as a free person and share the gospel as a missionary, but God had other plans. God puts Paul in prison. He decides to settle him down so he can write like most of the New Testament in there, and he also begins sharing the gospel with the palace guard, and all of this happens under the emperor's bill. Paul is interacting with, with some of the key troops, the elite troops of the Roman Empire. We're told that these individuals would have been personally chosen by the Caesar. They were his bodyguards. They were the highest paid people in the empire. And if you think about it, there's not a more strategic group that Paul could witness to if he wanted to reach the Roman Empire. And this is exactly what he's doing. In fact, there's a throwaway line at the end of Philippians, you you might even miss it if you're not really paying attention, where the Apostle Paul says something so unbelievable in verse 22 of chapter 4. Look at what he says. He says this, all the saints send you greetings. Who? Especially those of Caesar's household? Are you kidding me? Are you telling me, the Apostle Paul, that you have access to people in the family of the emperor himself? Are you joking, Paul? This is what God is doing to advance the gospel. And even in these circumstances, Paul finds joy. So can I ask you, brothers and sisters, this is a humbling passage, can you find joy in your difficult circumstances? Now, I'm not suggesting a don't worry, be happy, naive, Pollyanna, rose-colored glasses, put on a fake smile, pretend like everything's okay. That's not the kind of joy that Paul is experiencing here. This is an enduring joy. This is a resilient joy. This is a strong joy. This is a lasting and genuine joy that is available for the believer. And as I was thinking about a way to illustrate this, I thought about a submarine, A submarine is where you have a vessel that goes deep down into the depths of the ocean, but there's pressure on the inside of this vessel that allows it to be able to survive the incredible pressure that is crushing it from the outside. When it comes to Christian joy, I think it's that. I think that there's a spiritual resilience, a psychological resilience. There's pressure on the outside, but we have the Holy Spirit on the inside that's allowing us to withstand whatever comes our way. That's Christian joy. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In fact, I'll give you a biblical example of this kind of resilience from another letter that Paul wrote, where he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. See, so you and I can get through these difficult circumstances with this kind of resilience because the Holy Spirit of God lives on the inside of you and is producing fruit even in the most difficult settings. Back to the book of Philippians. Not only does he have difficult circumstances, Paul also has difficult people in his life. He's got enemies in his life that are trying to stir up trouble for him. Take a look with me at verse 15. Paul says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Some people were actually doing this for money. There was, a, there was a greedy component to them. And so verse 16, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But, but what does it matter? In Greek, it means so What? But so what? What does it matter? He says the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And so Paul says, because of this, I rejoice. I rejoice. Paul doesn't get caught up in these enemies. He doesn't get caught up in the comparison trap. He doesn't get caught up in trying to become, uh, you know, comparing himself with these other teachers and making sure that you know there's there's a distinction there Paul says it doesn't it doesn't really matter as long as the the word about Christ the gospel is getting out there I'm good I'm not going to compare myself to these other people I, I serve an audience of one see one of the things one of the weeds that steals our joy is comparison that's a big weed in our lives for us too right You pull up your social media and you're scrolling through your phone and all of a sudden it's like, well, this person has a boyfriend. I don't have a boyfriend. Well, this person got into that school or that college. I didn't really, I don't know about that. This person's family vacation looks a lot more enjoyable than my family vacation. I'm not even on vacation and I'm feeling envious and I'm comparing myself to others. But I'm comparing my real life to their highlight reel and the enemy is using that to to choke out my joy. But friends, the life that we have right now, the life that God has provided for you right this very minute, some of you would enjoy that a whole lot more if you'd stop looking to the right and looking to the left and instead enjoy the blessings that God has given you right here. Comparison will choke out your joy. Paul says, I'm not gonna worry about those other guys. My purpose is singular. My purpose is focused, and that gives me joy. Paul goes on to say this in verse 18. He says, yes, And I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can you read verse 21 out loud with me? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now think about that. They have taken every single thing away from Paul's life that they possibly could. His friends, his freedom, his privacy. They've taken everything except the one thing that can never be taken away from him, Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you something. How would you fill in this blank? To me, for me, to live is fill in the blank. Most Americans, if advertising says anything, would probably say something like, for me to live is possessions. Get all I can get, 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 get. Dave Ramsey says we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. (laughs) For other people, maybe it's for me to live is popularity. Students at school sometimes will do anything just to fit into their peer group, even if that, that means lowering their ethical standards. Other people say, for me to live is pleasure. If it feels good, do it. Nothing is is off the, 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 the table here. I want my life to be pleasurable. That is a philosophy called hedonism, and it is a weed that will choke out your joy. Rather than producing the fruit of the Spirit, hedonism will work like a weed sucking away the pleasure from your life. Fleshly appetites will never be satisfied. A lot of people get stuck here. A lot of people live in what I call when and then thinking. Like when I get done with school, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get that job I really want, then I'll be happy. When I have X amount in my bank account, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then I'll be happy. When the kids leave, <laughs> then I'll be happy. When I retire, On and on and on, we chase this elusive concept that never seems to materialize. It sure feels like a wild goose chase with no goose. Now, I'm going to suggest here that there's really only one answer to put in this blank that's going to last 100 years from now. For me, to live is Christ. This is Paul's eternal perspective. He's focusing on what really matters for what really counts. And actually, there's something counterintuitive about Christian joy It doesn't come through hedonistic pursuits. Joy comes as a byproduct of pursuing something greater than your own joy. The Bible does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after joy. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, not happiness, righteousness. If you will only seek after your happiness, it will elude you, you'll never get it. But if you will seek after righteousness, joy will come as a byproduct of that pursuit. There's an old expression. How do you spell joy? J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. Now, I'm not being overly simplistic here, but there is a lot of truth in this. Joy comes as a result of me living for something greater than myself. And the great irony is the less I'm concerned about my own joy, the more joy I get. Hedonism is this weed that chokes out my joy. This is why people still get angry and moody when they're on vacation. This is why they get irritated when they're on a cruise. This is why joy doesn't always come through hedonistic pursuits. Now, does this mean that we can't enjoy any pleasure? Does this mean we have to be like the Stoics who remove themselves and detach themselves from any source of pleasure to protect them? I don't think that that's a Christian idea. You can enjoy a physical pleasure. You can enjoy a good meal. You can enjoy a physical comfort in moderation. But listen, when you do that, you have to remember as a Christian that those things are pointing to the one who made them and the one who made you. They are a means to an end. C.S. Lewis used to say, it's like you don't focus on the sunbeams, you focus on the sun. You don't focus on the blessings, you focus on the blesser. You remember, okay, this enjoyable aspect of my life is possible because of the great benefactor, the glorious God who made this possible. And because he gives all good things, I will praise his holy name. And one day, this is like a little microcosm of being in his presence forevermore. And so we have to, raise our eyes from the sunbeam to the sun and remember where they came from and in that way we can enjoy pleasures of this world more than anyone else because we know the god who created these things st augustine wrestled with this and had a really good way of putting it succinctly in one sentence and he said this he says he loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. In other words, we have to see where all these little joys point us. They point us to the great joy giver, our great God. This is what Paul has learned. For to me, he says, to live is Christ. Paul goes on to say this in verse 22. He says, if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. There's our word, fruitful. Yet what shall I choose? He says, I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body convinced of this. I know that I will remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So just picture the scene. Just back away for a second. Here's the Apostle Paul. Here he's writing this letter. He very well could be executed as a result of his career path and as a result of his behaviors. And even this doesn't take away his joy. Now, if you were in Paul's shoes, just be honest, real talk for a second. If this was you, would you have the same Joyful spirit. I know I myself, I'll just be honest, I've thrown myself pity parties over circumstances that don't even come close to the severity of what the Apostle Paul is going through right here. Raise your hand if that relates to you at all. Don't leave me hanging up here, guys. Come on, come on. Everybody's got their hand up except for the liars in our midst. You know it's hard. My car won't start. Pity party. My air conditioner condenser broke at home. It's July. It's July pity party. There's a sinkhole on Route 287 at the exit for 78. Pity party. I've been throwing myself a pity party for that for four weeks. The littlest things, but friends, think about this. What is a 10-minute detour compared to what Paul is going through right here? It's nothing. And yet, even in prison, he wants the Philippian church to know that God has not forsaken him, God has not forsaken me, God is advancing in his cause, the gospel is marching forward, and this gives him great joy. And so how do we get our joy back? How do we find joy even in the midst of difficult, impossible circumstances? And one of the keys, I think, is found in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians where Paul teaches us how to maintain our joy even in the midst of anxiety and worry. He says this in verse 6. You're familiar with this verse, right? He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I love this verse. It tells me that Paul was a human being just like everybody else. He had anxieties and worries just like I do. There were times where he was down. There were times where he was depressed. There were times when it was difficult for him. He experienced grief. He experienced sorrow, but he also knew where to go with those heavy emotions. He knew that he couldn't handle what he was facing if he didn't also give it over to God and trust him for the outcome regardless of what it was. Friends, the same promise, the same God gives the same invitation to you and me. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, does that mean that he always removes those burdens right away? Well, not necessarily. But it does mean he's always with us, number one. He will never leave us, never forsake us. And number two, it does mean that he is always working all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. You know, there's another phrase that I like to say. God is working all the time. And all the time, God is working Friends, God is always working for his glory and for our good, and this is a source of joy. That doesn't mean we have to be happy all the time, like in, right, out, right, happy all the time. Like, I, I don't know that that's really a Christian virtue. I don't really know that that's really what the Bible is teaching us here. The Bible teaches something called joy, which is very different from happiness. Happiness depends on circumstances or happenstance. "Hap" is the Latin word for chance. My friend Glenn Gallagher, who tragically passed away this, this past year, who was a man full of joy, said it this way. He says, happiness depends on what happens. But the problem with that is what happens changes. And so if I locate my joy in something that changes, then the support system for my joy is always in trouble. By contrast, the Apostle Paul and all of the Scriptures teach us that our joy is not determined by happenstance or good circumstances. Rather, this kind of joy can be experienced even when things are going wrong. I'll put it this way. In the Bible, joy is not so much a feeling, but more of a point of view, a perspective, a way of looking at things. This is really helpful to me because it sets me free from the pressure that i need to feel happy all the time I, I you know nothing wrong with feelings you know that's fine nowadays i think sometimes we make a little too much of our emotions everybody's like well i don't i'm not feeling this okay well you know i don't know that i always have to feel things i don't always have to feel happy And where is that in the bible A long time ago, one of my kids was at Little Footprints, the preschool here, and there was a parenting seminar. And I was attending that, not as a pastor, just as a parent. And I'll never forget something the instructor said. He said, nowadays, it seems like our kids, they just want to be happy. And we as parents, that's our strategy, to make sure that they're happy all the time. We just want our kids to be happy. We just want our kids to be happy. Happy, happy, happy. And he goes, I don't want my kids to be happy. I want them to be unhappy. (laughs) And we said, why? He said, because there's some things in life to be unhappy about. The war in Ukraine is not something you want to be happy about. Food insecurity is not something you should be happy about. The problem of racism is not something we should be happy about. See, the Scriptures describe the Apostle Paul as having a variety of emotions. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And he has both of these things happening at the same time. And there's there's moments in your life where you have sorrow, and there's moments in your life where you have rejoicing, And if you deny either one of those, you're not living in reality. The Apostle Paul served the Lord by by holding on to both. I have sorrow, and I also have great rejoicing. It's both at the same time. Christian joy is not the absence of all sadness, and it's not necessarily the presence of happy feelings. It's a point of view, a perspective, a way of looking at it. I like the way Kay Warren defines joy in her book. She says this, Joy is the settled assurance... That God is in control of every detail in my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything will be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. That's joy. I heard about a doctor who was seeing a patient... And the patient had a chart, just like all patients have a chart. And the nurse went to go see this particular patient. And, and he had brain cancer and was being treated for that. He was also a Christian. He was a Christ follower. And the nurse wrote a critical comment on his chart that has always kind of stuck with me. On the chart, it simply said this, Mr. X, and I'll leave the name off, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. <laughs> and ever since I heard that story, I thought one of my life goals is to be inappropriately Joyful. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm not saying Pollyanna, I'm not saying rose colored glasses. I'm talking about long-lasting, enduring, submarine, real Christian joy. Let me show you one Bible verse that blows all this up. Hebrews chapter 12. It describes the Lord Jesus this way. It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He set joy before him, out in front of him. He set joy out in front of him as the desired outcome of his great work of salvation in order to endure the cross. Now, I don't think he found joy in the cross itself. It's not a joyful thing to be hanging on a cross. There's no joy in the feeling of being crucified. Just because Jesus was the Son of God doesn't mean he didn't also experience pain and sorrow. It's not like he wasn't human. It was difficult, and he knew it would be, and he wasn't surprised by that. He wasn't surprised by the pain. He wasn't surprised by the blood. He wasn't surprised by their mocking. He, He wasn't surprised by this, but yet it says he set out joy in front of him as his focus, so that his pain became purposeful. And this is what we have to learn as well. We can do the same exact thing. It's this process that his half-brother James was talking about in chapter 1 when he encourages his audience also suffering this way, saying, Consider it, I'll show you on the screen, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Notice the first two words, consider it. If you're a numbers person, if you're an accountant person in our audience today, this was a financial term. It's like a financial statement where there's income on one side and expenses on the other side. James says, I want you to do some spiritual accounting with your circumstances. If you would just take some of the things that you thought were expenses and put them over on the income side you would look at this a little differently. If you would just take some of the things in your life you thought were liabilities and put them over here on the asset side, you would see that God is actually using those things in your life to produce maturity and Christlikeness in you. And those are actually the things that God is using to, for your good and for his glory. This is not about you pretending to be happy. This is about you trusting in God that he's always working all the time. Now, friends, The reason why our joy cannot be found in circumstances is because circumstances always change. They are not supposed to be the source of our joy in the first place, and God set it up that way by design. He set it up that way so that we would be disappointed in those circumstances in this world. The reason why there's a constant seeking, the reason why there's the pursuit of happiness, a constant longing that never seems to be satisfied, a wild goose chase with no goose is really because there's only one thing that can ever fill that void in your heart, and it is God and God alone. This is what Solomon found out. Ecclesiastes chapter chapter three, verse 11, uh, Solomon says this, God, he planted eternity in the human heart. There's a God-shaped hole. There's a vacuum. Nothing is ever going to fill that hole except for God himself. I love the word planted there. It means that God has given each person the ability to look beyond this life out into eternity. This is why C.S. Lewis said, if I find in my heart that I cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. The only logical explanation is that I must have been made for another world. And this is where we find the source of our joy. Friends, the one thing you need, the one thing you long for, the one thing you really desire as your source of joy is God, and you'll never be satisfied until you're satisfied in him alone. If you find your joy in anything but him, mark my words, you'll be disappointed. St. Augustine said it best, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter three, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to be found in him. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I even want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. It's all about knowing God. That's the source of my joy. You see, Christian joy is not about changing your circumstances. It's about changing the source of your joy. This is the most important thing I want to tell you today. So let's say it out loud. Christian joy is not about changing your circumstances. It's about changing the source of your joy. And this rich treasure, friends, when you have it in Christ, can never be taken away from you. This source of joy is absolutely unshakable. Even when the economy is bad, so what? You have Jesus Christ. There's a place in Psalm chapter four, verse seven, where King David is lamenting about the success of all of his enemies. And he says something interesting in verse seven. He says this, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. They only have joy when their bank account is full. I have more joy in my heart than that, David says. Why? Because they only have joy when the stock market is up. Why? Because their joy is in the stock market. My joy is in the one who owns the stock market. My joy is way better. It's far better. It's far more secure. Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Friends, is that your source of joy today? Do you find your source of joy satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ? I would argue that that is a great definition of faith. Faith is finding your source of joy in Jesus Christ. Nobody says it better than John Piper. There's so many hyphens in this sentence. It's just beautiful. Take a look at what he says. He says this, When you have faith in Jesus, you rejoice in his glorious deity as Christ. You rejoice in the humble, sinless, virgin-born humanity of Jesus. You're satisfied by the universe creating, miracle working, power of Jesus. You're satisfied by the covenant keeping, law fulfilling, righteousness performing, perfection providing, obedience of Jesus. You're satisfied by the wrath bearing, justice satisfying, sin atoning, death of Jesus. You're satisfied by the death defeating, devil destroying, heaven opening, resurrection of Jesus. And you're satisfied by the sovereign interceding, ever-present, never-leaving-us-alone, triumphant reign of Jesus at the Father's right hand. Is he your source of joy? Will that be what you live for in your life? Or will you settle like so many other people do? He is your treasure. This is why the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always, Again, I say rejoice. See, this is how the enemy can never choke out true joy. We just have to remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. There's a lot of times that word rejoice is used in the Bible. It's not a word that we use very often in our culture. Maybe we should use it more. Rejoice is the verb form of joy. It's the action of expressing joy and delight. And if you look really closely at this word, you'll notice that it begins with a prefix re-. Think back to your grammar classes and you'll remember that this prefix means once more or to do something again or to return to. So to rejoice means to return back to your source of joy. It's a choice and an action that we can all make to turn back to the Lord Jesus. Sooner or later, we're gonna have one of those days. Sooner or later, we're gonna have one of those weeks or one of those years. It happens more often than we would like to admit. That's when the re comes in. That's when I must return regularly, daily, constantly to the Lord Jesus as my source of joy. It's why rejoicing is our process of refueling our tank and restoring our strength and renewing our spirit. You know how you have to put a battery on a charger and it sits on the charger for a little while? That's what we have to do. We have to reconnect our soul to the Son of God and find our joy in Him. And pray like David, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You know, sometimes later at night, my wife and I like to drink tea. And so we, we get our water going and then we pour our cup of tea and we, we throw our tea bag in there. And we let it sit there for a little while. That is a great picture of how we are just supposed to spend time with the Lord Jesus, to let it seep in. We don't just throw the tea bag in for five seconds and pull it right out. You have to let it sit there, let it seep in, let it penetrate all of the water just like that. You have to allow your soul to sit in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to drink in all of his living water and spend time with him and have him restore your joy. Let me put that verse back up there one more time. It says this, Jesus, for the joy set before him Endured the cross. Now, there was no suffering as bad as the Savior's suffering on the cross. He suffered something you'll never fully understand. He suffered it so that you won't have to fully ever understand that, thank God. But how did he do it? It says he set out joy in front of him. Now, what joy did Jesus get out of his work on the cross? What did Jesus get out of this incredible, infinite experience of agony and torment? Did he get a sense of accomplishment? He didn't need that. Did he get his father's admiration? He already had that. Friends, the only thing he didn't have was you. You were the joy set before him. You were the source of his joy. Now, if you think I'm making too much of humanity, or this is an anthropocentric reading of the text, let me bring up to the witness stand the great Jonathan Edwards, who said this: quote, Christ has his delight most truly and properly in obtaining your salvation, not merely as a means conducive to his joy and delight. But as what he actually rejoices in and is actually satisfied him most directly and properly. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, he is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with joy and quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Wow. Friends, if you can see Jesus locating his joy in you, then you can locate your joy in him. I'd like to invite the worship team to come, and as they do, I have one more quote. A quote from a, a wordsmith named Pastor Shy Lin, who talks about the source of our joy in an incredible way. He says this, to return to your joy, just remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, the God-glorifier, the universe-creator, the prophecy-fulfiller, the perfect law-obeyer, the scripture-validator, the father-honorer, the humility-modeler, the cross-carrier, the sin-bearer, the death conqueror, the grave-defeater, the salvation-achiever, the prayer-answerer, the proud-humbler, the weak-strengthener the elect preserver, the triumphant returner, the justice executor, the Satan destroyer, and the eternal joy giver. That's Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. He is the source of joy. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends here today who may be experiencing a hopelessness and a despair that we can't even imagine. Would you come around them, surround them with your Holy Spirit today? Would you restore unto us the joy of your salvation? Would you help us to fix our eyes on you? And may we locate our source of joy in you, Lord Jesus. For your glory and honor, we pray these things. Amen.